It's time for the Rick Smith Show. Now, here is the voice of the working class, Rick Smith. And welcome, brothers, sisters, working class heroes. This is the Rick Smith Show. Thanks so much for being here today on the big program. Lots to get to, lots to talk about. Uh, Today, I was thinking about Halloween 1891. No, I was not alive, but a little bit of history that, and and a little bit of regret. Uh, Back in 2013, we did a labor history tour that took us across the country and to a lot of places where labor's history was, was built or people fought, bled, and died for the freedoms, the, the, the luxuries, the things we, we take for granted today. And one of the places we didn't get to go to, and, and I, I, I regret it, uh, because it was one of the places that I wanted to make sure we, uh, we, we hit on the tour, but we chose a different location in eastern Tennessee, was the site of the, the Coal Creek uh, Coal Wars. Uh, back in the in the late 1890s, you had the, the coal barons and the miners at odds. Union organizing was going on. Workers wanted better wages, hours, conditions. And the, well, the owners didn't want to give those things. And strikes were routinely broken up during this period by having black miners come in and replace the white striking miners, which again, served a couple of purposes. One, helped break the strike, but two, caused an enormous amount of animosity animosity between blacks and whites. Kept them pitted against each other uh, because how dare they come and take our jobs. And this 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 place in, in Bryceville, Tennessee, was a place we wanted to go because there's a marker there uh, that, that commemorates the the actions on Halloween 1891 where you had a bunch of a bunch of miners uh you know like, like 100 or more who overran the stockade that the Knoxville Iron Company had built uh cuz what used to go on in in a lot of southern states especially Tennessee uh, was you had a a convict lease program where the state would arrest a bunch of black people, lock them up, trumped up charges, actual charges, no charges at all, but lock them up for the sole purpose of being able to use their labor because they're not free people anymore. We can abuse them. Slavery had ended. So you, you weren't getting free labor out of having slaves. So what you did is quite simply, you arrested them, uh, made them, made them felons, made them convicts, and then put them to work for the benefit of the state. And this went on for years. But on Halloween 1891, a bunch of of white miners uh, overran this stockade, freed uh, the the convict leasees, and and thus the, the beginning of the end of the convict lease program in Tennessee. And it was a big deal uh, because you know this is a moment in history where that division between black and white um, didn't exist. Because understand, this is this is that moment where you finally realize that you know we're all in this together. We're all broke. We're poor. Black white doesn't matter. It's green. It's it's monetary. And and in this moment, you had these miners who understood that. 
And it got me thinking about the whole program and what's gone on over the years because on December 12th in the state of Alabama, in U.S. District Court for Middle, Middle Tennessee, uh, Middle District of, of Alabama, you had a lawsuit filed. Uh, ten plaintiffs, all black, said the state had denied incarcerated people parole for the sole purpose of being able to lease them out. So they filed this lawsuit saying, hey, this is nothing more than a modern day form of slavery. Uh, the state system of, of the prisons is, is basically a labor camp and they're suing. And, and rightly so, because look, since 2018, this is this was a mind-blowing fact to me. Since 2018, uh, it's being reported that 575 companies and more than 100 public agencies in Alabama have used people who were locked up and then denied parole. Because, hey, we got a good one here. We got a good one. He, he shows and goes to work. Uh, we can make a lot of money off of his back, you know, doing all kinds of work from, you know, fast food work to janitors to be drive, you know, working on metal things. You remember the old days when it was all about, you know, punching out license plates? Well, they've gone in, into all kinds of places. I mean, there was a story a couple of years ago about people, you know, basically taking orders for online, you know, credit card orders for airlines, for all kinds of stuff. And what they're saying, the state has brought in about $450 million a year off of their labor. And, and it doesn't trickle down. And that's the thing. And it got me thinking about this convict lease program. Because, it, you know, mid-1870s through the, the early 1920s, you had these programs that were that were going on in southern states. Alabama being one of them. Tennessee was one of the biggest. But Florida, Georgia, Louisiana, Mississippi, all of them. The Carolinas, even Texas. And you go, well, we're so much better than that now. And you, no, we're not. The sad reality is what we've allowed to happen, especially in red states, especially in the states where you go, oh, prison's too, uh, too, too easy for these people is we've created an environment where uh, you have these systems set up. Now, again, we're told if you go to jail, you know, you, you deserve doing a hard time. And you go, okay, well, you're out there, you know, on the chain gang, you're cutting grass, whatever. But at the benefit of, of corporate America, are you okay with that? Now, understand, this, this convict lease program, which most people, sadly, have never heard of, did not know. And I've talked to several people over the last day or so who have said, I didn't, I didn't know we did that. And this is why, again, I come back to teaching actual history. Because this is in our past. This isn't to make people feel bad for what happened in the 1870s, 1880s, 1890s. This isn't, this isn't about that. It's about making sure we don't do it again. And oddly enough... We seem to be, according to this lawsuit, doing it again. And this is why I come back to education being so important. Because the, the corporatists, they don't run out of bad ideas. 
And what you have is you have a system of, you know, well, prisons are really expensive. You know, we got to get those people to pay for being in prison. So what what better way to, to, to pay for it than to exploit cheap labor? And red states are doing it very well. Now, again, as I said, you know, the, the system back in the in the 1880s, 90s, all the way up until I think 1928 is when when, when it ended. Um, these were mostly southern states. And it generated a lot of revenue. And massive, massive cheap labor. But also, and this is the part where, again, I was thinking about today, we're in a moment of labor militancy. We're in a moment where where workers are finally saying, hey, we've had enough. We demand better wages, hours, conditions. Are we going to see states like Alabama maybe using prison labor to break labor strikes today again? Is this where we're going back to? Is this is this our future? Because this is the frustrating part that I have here. Because what we've done in this country is we've forgotten our history. And and we're at a moment where we're again divided and pitted against each other. And it got me thinking about the tour that we did. Uh, in 2015, we did a civil rights tour where we went into a lot of places where we treated black people really badly uh, in, in areas where, you know, you know, people were spit on at lunch counters and beaten, hung, shot. You all, every bit of man's inhumanity to man happened. And in all of those places where history remembers, it's now a tourist trap. We've now we've now created, uh, you know, kind of a horrible tourist industry. Where, hey, we were bad to black people. Come see and bring your tourism dollars with us. And one of the places we went was the, the historic Stagville Plantation in Durham, North Carolina. And if you ever get a chance, well worth the time to go and 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 have the folks give you a tour. Uh, we were They were very gracious, gave us a private tour, walked us all over the place. and And one thing that stuck with me there is she said, look, you know, the reality is, is while the slaves were were slaves, they were treated actually much better than the, the poor whites. But the poor whites thought they were better because they weren't slaves. They were starving. Uh, they lived in ramshacks and they, you know, they, they didn't have health care. And, you know, you, you name it, all the bad things that could happen to somebody was happening to them. But they still thought they were better. They still thought that they were superior. And, and were easily pitted against each other to where had they, had they understood that they have a common interest, that their labor should be compensated, you may not have had slavery go on as long. You may not have had it been as brutal. And it, it got, me, got me thinking about where we are today. We're still fighting that divide. You know, I go back to the old quote attributed to Jay Gould, the railroad magnate. I can easily pay half the working class to murder the other half. The sad reality is they're not paying anymore. We're dividing amongst ourselves. We're tearing at we're tearing at ourselves in this. And this is the frustrating part of where where, where I'm here. You go and this is another example of our legal system falling behind. This is another example of of Republicans who hate working people exploiting a system. 
and a federal government that seems to be, well, either incapable of holding these people accountable. I know, I know, but Rick, states' rights. States' rights. Is it right that we hold people well beyond the time where they could get out, they could become productive members of society simply because, well, they're making profit for the state? This is what this lawsuit alleges. And I assume it's going to get bigger. Uh, ten, ten people have filed this. I assume it will get to be much bigger. And I got to assume there are going to be other states uh, involved in this. But I'll tell you, it just got me thinking about where we are as a country and where we need to go. And education being a huge part of that. I want to hear your thoughts. Email me, Rick at the Rick Smith uh, I'll tell you, either way, it's deplorable. Right back after this. We are AFGE, the American Federation of Government Employees. We represent 700,000 federal and D.C. government workers who are the vital threads of the fabric of American life. We support our nation's military. We take care of our nation's veterans. We protect our nation's borders. We respond to our nation's crises and natural disasters. We provide services to our nation's seniors. The American Federation of Government Employees. We work... For America. Welcome back to the Rick Smith Show. Now, here is Rick Smith. So interesting hearing in Pennsylvania. The legislature held a hearing on water privatization and, well, the Act 12 uh, that Governor Wolf signed into law back in 2016 uh talking about pennsylvania's utility law and and basically you know how how you value municipal utilities and there was there's a quote that caught my attention Uh, a guy named anthony Bolito. he's the executive director of the north penn uh, water authority uh he gave a very very detailed uh, testimony on you know why water privatization is screwing over customers because you know this is this is, the, this is I, whenever you talk about privatization this is the thing that gets me uh it, it's always sold as we're going to get you cheaper stuff it's going to be better service it's going to it's going to be heaven on earth in fact in the 90s when pennsylvania deregulated its electric industry uh your, your the electricity coming into your home uh, they were running ads on the radio going, you know, you went to heaven and, you know, what do you think? You, you think this is Pennsylvania where you have choice for, for, for electricity? And the choice is bad uh, and worse. The choice is expensive and more expensive. Those are the choices. And this has been played out over and over and over again. And since 2016, water and sewer bills for thousands of people in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania have tripled. Have, have you know, just soared by by triple digits? You know things are. It's crazy, but it is well. It is what you get. And Anthony Bolito, um, had had a quote that I, I I'm like you know I 
you, you got to play this quote because it's it's really that that important. Uh, when you think about privatization, when you think about we're going to sell off our water and sewer, we're going to sell off our parking authority, we're going to sell off our turnpike. This is what you should think of. That people should see privatization for what for what it really is, which is a scam. It is a loan disguised as a gift, wrapped up with empty promises that must be paid back with interest through exorbitant rate increases, resulting in no better service to the customers, while the private company's upper management and investors fill their own pockets with obscene amounts of profits, and they laugh all the way to the bank. All the way to the bank. And look, we've talked about this before. You tell me something that we've we've privatized. Find me something. Whether it's the turnpike in Indiana, whether it's the parking authority in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, or Pittsburgh, or Chicago, our friends in Chicago would be thrilled to tell you how bad privatization has been for them. Uh, no matter what it is, it always seems to cost us more and for less service. And I tell this story all the time because, you know, I remember back years ago, we were living in a, in a suburb of Allentown, and the community had its own trash pickup. They owned the truck. They had a contract with the, the landfill. They had workers. They would come around, and it was part of your tax base. It's what you paid in property taxes, and, and it was a service that the local community did for the, the citizens. Someone got, got the bright idea, hey, let's privatize the trash pickup. And the first year after they privatized, uh, the rates were like, like 40 bucks. That's eh, only 40 bucks. 40 bucks a quarter. That's only a couple bucks. And that's what they sold it. It's going to save us money. We don't have to raise your taxes as much. No, they still raised your taxes 40 bucks a quarter to pick up the trash that you were getting as part of your regular tax base. But they sold it. They sold it good. They said, you know, they're going to keep the cost down. It's not going to be too much. Well, after the first contract, you know what happened. That 40 bucks went up to 110. Yeah. <laughs> Oops. And now people are looking around going, wait a minute, I thought I thought it was going to be down here. And then the next contract, it doubled again. Why? Because they know, they know the township wasn't going to go out and spend the money to buy another truck. They know they weren't going to go out and try and, and, and find workers to fill that those jobs. They weren't going to renegotiate contracts to get access to the landfills. So the tax the taxpayer got stuck with it. And this again is it, this is just one isolated incident. And and when I when I tell that story, it's amazing. And I'm I'm gonna I, I'm I'm expecting to get a lot of email on this of people saying, yeah, same thing happened to us, because these private these privatization schemes aren't about making your life better. They aren't about getting you better services or cheaper services or more efficient services. Because we're sold on this idea, and we've been sold this for a, lo a long time. The government's inefficient and it's bad. Only private for-profit corporations only private interests are efficient and that's where you're going to get the best deal competition yeah now here's the thing uh i i used to work on a trash truck when i was in going to college and there was no limit on you know what you would pick up you put out 30 cans worth of trash trash truck picked up 30 cans because you worked for the city now, the for-profit private industry gives you one can. And no big things either. That's a special pickup, and you only get one of those a month. 
Now you go, but Rick, you know, we should be conserving. And I agree. There's, there's a lot of that, but this is about, this is about what we were sold. We were sold better service, more efficient service and cheaper. Cause that's what private industry does. That's what competition does. We were going to get all these trash companies competing and they're going to bring prices down. It's going to be great. It was going to be just fabulous. And I asked this question, and I've been asking it for almost 20 years now on, on the radio and on air. You know, show me something that we've privatized. Show me something we've privatized that's actually worked out the way it, it, was, it was intended. Show me where it, it was more affordable. Show me where it was better serviced. Show me where it, it, it didn't take public control away. Show me where it, it, it created more inequality. It didn't create more inequality. And as I was watching this guy's testimony, and and look, it's a, it's a shame what's happening in this state as we're privatizing just about everything across this country. I started thinking about, you know, back in the, I think it was in the 90s when Bolivia privatized its its water supply. And look, a lot of countries have done this. It's not just it's not just Bolivia, but in Bolivia at the time, you literally couldn't put out a bucket to collect rainwater because Bechtel who owned their water supply, uh, had raised the rates like 300%. I mean, it was just crazy. And they were literally fining people, literally fining people for collecting rainwater. And it, it, got, it got me thinking again about this idea that, you know, is water, is it not that water is a, a, a human right? Isn't this something that we, we need to survive is it something now again, you know, the, the CEO of, of Nestle a number of years ago got himself into into some hot waters by saying, no, it's not a human right. <laughs> no, it should be marketed, you know, like, like other food stuff. You know, it should be something that we can commodify and something that we can we can we can profit from. And understand, Nestle is one of the biggest water companies in the world. Uh, you know, most of the water you buy in bottles, a lot of it's Nestle brand or Pepsi or Coke or one of them. And most of it, sadly, is your local water authority being tapped dry. Why? For profit, of course. Because that's what's really important. And the thing is, is when they buy these these systems up, and as, uh, as Anthony Bolito went into, you go, look, they're not buying the water system. They're not buying the pumps and the buildings and the, the pipes. They're not buying that stuff. They're buying customers. They're buying people who are desperate and don't have an option. Again, now, I, I love the argument of the free market. Well, you know, the free market will decide. No, this isn't a free market. The pipes coming into your house with water, uh, you don't get to choose different pipes coming into your house. There isn't, there isn't the ability to go, you know what, I, I, I choose different water coming in into my pipes. That competition doesn't exist. And you can't abstain. That's the other part of the free market. If you had the ability to not drink water, maybe there's an argument. But here again, this is where corporate interests, be it American Water, which is probably the biggest water company uh, in, in this country, or Viola, or Suez, North America. These are the big water companies that control millions of people's lives. And the question is, is when do we start taking back some of the things that were our commons? Some of the things that we used to do for ourselves. When do we do that? 
Maybe when the profit goes away or maybe when we start taxing these people. Because here's the thing. They don't lose. The investors that come in, they don't in, they don't upgrade, they don't do they get their money back. And they get it quickly. And then it's about long-term profits. Instead of saying, you know what, we as the community should be the one benefiting. We as the community should be the ones who, uh, I don't know, control our own destiny. We now have a corporate, a corporate titan saying how much water you'll get or how much you're going, how much water can you afford? There's a question. I want to hear your thoughts. Email me, rick at the ricksmithshow.com. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1921. That was the day Kansas National Guard troops marched into Crawford County coal fields to quell the Mother's March. 8,000 miners went on strike that September to protest the jailing of their United Mine Worker District leader, Alexander Hoet. Hoet was found guilty of violating a statewide strike injunction for calling workers out on strike in 1919. Governor Henry Justin Allen had established a state industrial court which ruled strikes illegal. Hoet's members considered it a new kind of Fugitive Slave Act. They likened their jailed leader to a modern-day John Brown. The United Mine Workers opposed the court and the increasing number of unauthorized strikes. Many district leaders were divided over this protest strike and chose not to support it. The strike also divided the membership, and some went back to work. Conditions worsened after three months until the striking miners' wives took matters into their own hands. They met in Franklin to organize a march that would effectively shut down the mines. Their numbers grew from 500 that first day to over 4,000. According to Benjamin Guzan, for three days the women stormed area mines, obstructed traffic, and assaulted workers. When met with resistance, they threw red pepper at scab workers and overturned their lunch buckets, showering the miners with coffee and what had been intended as their midday meals. Four companies of National Guard troops, including a machine gun division, arrived to stop the march and break the strike. The press derisively referred to the women as the Amazon Army. Many women were arrested, but mobilized their newly won voting power to unseat anti-labor politicians the next spring. As a result, the state's industrial court was ruled unconstitutional. Like what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com. You're listening to The Rick Smith Show, where working people come to talk. So again, the action in this is to fight back against privatization. The action in this is to say no more. The action is to get active, to get involved, well, to take on the big corporations and demand our government, demand that they actually work in our interests. And that when we do privatize this stuff, that it's actually for the good of we the people and not just the good of the corporate interests who are most certainly lining their pockets and laughing all the way to the bank. Uh, look, are there reasons for public-private partnerships? Sure, there are. Uh, when the public needs something, they have private interests do it with public dollars and the public controls it, I'm all in favor. But any other way, not so much. I want to hear your thoughts. Email me, rick at the ricksmithshow.com. For folks watching on TV, thanks so much for being here. We'll see you next time. Uh, for folks uh, on the radio, 
We're right back after this. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 2005. That was the day the labor movement lost a man who was willing to go to jail to fight for the rights of working people. Clinton Jenks was born in Colorado Springs in 1918. He learned of labor consciousness from his father, a postal worker. During World War II, Jenks served as a navigator for the Air Force. He was awarded a Distinguished Flying Cross. After the war, he became involved in supporting the needs of veterans. He served as the president of his chapter of the American Veterans Committee. Jenks became a business agent for the Amalgamated Union of Mines, Mills, and Smelter Workers. In 1950, he helped Local 890 to carry out a 15-month strike against the Empire Zinc Company in New Mexico. The union members were predominantly Mexican-American. The story of that strike was told in the iconic labor film, The Salt of the Earth. In 1951, Jenks was elected president of Local 890. He was jailed for his involvement in labor actions and held in solitary confinement for 16 months. After his release, he was again put on trial. This time, he was accused of being a secret member of the Communist Party. It was illegal for labor leaders to have ties to the Communist Party after the passage of the Taft-Hartley Act. An FBI informant claimed Jenks was a communist. He was tried and convicted. Later, the informant admitted he had lied about Jenks. In 1957, the U.S. Supreme Court overturned his conviction in what became known as the Jenks case. The story of Clinton Jenks shows that even the loyalties of a decorated war veteran can be questioned if he dares to stand up for the rights of working people. Today's Labor History in Two brought to you in memory of Carol Hillman, a passionate friend of workers and volunteer of the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. Welcome back to the Rick Smith Show. Now, here is Rick Smith. You know, since the passage of OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, in 1970, under a Republican, Rick, Richard Nixon, yes, yes, a Republican, uh, it has transformed the workplace in this country and established a comprehensive standard for safety, safe working conditions, provided some enforcement mechanisms to ensure that, well, you know, when things go bad, somebody's held somewhat accountable and it set oversight standards to ensure that workers are provided with with good safe working conditions so they go home in the same condition that they came to work in sadly sadly osha like many of our worker centric bodies they've been under attack uh, we know who's attacking them uh, and as we talked the other day with former acting assistant secretary and deputy assistant secretary uh, of labor jordan barab uh, the fall 2023 regulatory agenda it's been released Sadly, no standards, nothing new uh, has been proposed, but there, there's some positive news. Uh, there is a new talk about tracking workplace injuries and illnesses. That could be helpful. Basically restoring what Obama put forth and Trump repealed. Good stuff. And there's also a proposal to strengthen the walk-around representation process. And that's where my next guest is going to help us walk through some of this. That's why I've asked Steve Salman to come talk with us. Steve is the Director of Health, Safety, and Environment with our friends at the United Steelworkers. You want to check out their website, usw.org. Steve, thanks for taking time for us. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. So 
walk me through this 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 fall regulatory uh, agenda. There's there's nothing, no new standards as I understand. I know there's there's talk of some work on stuff in the future, but nothing right now as I get right. Uh, that's my understanding. That's correct. Uh, I think part of the challenge is for this administration, they walked into a, a real mess. Uh, when Biden took office, we were deep into the pandemic. And OSHA's number one issue that they had to deal with was how do you make workplaces safe when people who are in the public getting ill and sick and dying and then coming to a workplace and say, you know, you're just as exposed in a workplace as you are in the public. And so the administration had to basically bring in new political people who would lead the agency and by the way, uh, OSHA doesn't have a whole lot of budget to work with for what they're required to do. Uh, if you compare OSHA to the EPA, um, you know, there's there's a whole lot more budget for the environment. If you kill fish, um, there's a lot more penalties if you kill fish than there is killing workers. Yep. There's more resources and things of this nature. And it's time that, uh, you know, that that leveling of those resources is needed for OSHA, but they are where they are thanks to Congress and so on. Um, and this agency had to come in in a real mess and try to deal with this, this pandemic and how do you get an emergency temporary standard that would fit for all kinds of different industry sectors, especially for our, our heroes in the healthcare sector who were putting people in body bags and how do you protect the people who's there for, to help everyone else? So uh, there's been a lot that OSHA has had to deal with. And then, oh, yes, there's also supposed to put together, you know, standards that can help uh, workers. And unfortunately, it takes so long to get this process into place um, that really Congress has set OSHA up to fail rather than to set it up for success. No, and this is another one of these things where it takes a, really a long time to get these standards, not regulations, but these standards put into place. Um, and it's so easy to almost repeal them because I look at what, what Trump was able to do during his four years and the attacks on all of the regulatory bodies that they did under the guise of we're, we're just we're, we're creating jobs by destroying regulations when the reality is is uh, the right wing view of job killing regulation is really really people killing lack of regulation. Indeed. And I, you know, I thought it was interesting when you pointed out in your introduction, Rick, about how it was Nixon, a Republican president who signed the Occupational Safety and Health Act in 1970. That is to guarantee every worker uh, a safe and healthy workplace free from recognized hazards that can cause injury, illness or death. And yet, if you look back to when Clinton left office, uh, OSHA put together an ergonomic standard. So OSHA has been working on forever, soft tissue, repetitive strain injuries, uh, all these carpal tunnel, you name it, uh, repetitive strain injuries. And they ha finally had a standard, a regulation that could protect workers from the leading cause of injuries and illnesses. And then when Bush took office after Clinton left, he used the Congressional Review Act and with the swipe of a pen, eliminated protections for workers. And you look at what the history has been under the Republican leadership. Um, they did away with the ergonomic standard. You can't even get an ergonomic standard now. So it's handcuffed OSHA to be even able to put together a regulation. Uh, 
when they're under the Trump administration, uh, things had to be sued to get anywhere with OSHA. Uh, they never appointed a assistant secretary to head OSHA. There was always an acting. Uh, and I would even go so far as to tell you that under the Trump administration, uh, the Chemical Safety Board, which is a really small agency with a big mission. So whenever there's a catastrophic release, um, fatality, a thing that some kind of event that affects a workplace or the community, this little small agency, and people love this agency for what they do of sharing the lessons learned on their website with reports and videos, people use them in safety trainings. The Trump administration said, we're not going to fund it. They proposed zero in the budget. Um, and that is an assault on workers. It's an assault on communities. And to know that they propose to just let it die on the vine by not having any funding, uh, Congress stepped in and said, no, we can't let that happen. It's too important of an agency. So this is why it's really important why voting matters. Um, you're voting for your job, your occupational health, and your occupational safety. And with the upcoming election, this is going to be huge. And this administration needs the time to get those additional things in play because they had to just come in and try to get their feet on the ground and deal with this pandemic and deal with all the other issues that was going on, not to mention all kinds of staff that left, like all kinds of other workplaces that they've had to bring in new staff and new folks to help run the agency. And Rick, you brought up a very important point about the record keeping rule that the Biden administration just put back on the books that Trump had basically tried to do away with. Drive around, go look at workplaces. And I've yet to find a workplace that says we're fully staffed. Right. People are hiring everywhere. And if you wanna go shopping for a car or a new appliance, you do some research. You try to understand what it is that you're going to be uh, looking into, and maybe you're gonna buy a house. You have to sign a contract with a bank about your loan and so on. You're gonna wanna investigate where that workplace is that you decide to provide your living uh, to your family and, and so on. Wouldn't you want to know what it's like to work at that place before you ever get there? Wouldn't it be nice to be able to shop around and say, wow, this place has had a fatality. This place has all kinds of ergonomic injuries. So that means if I go to work there, I'm not protected by OSHA because they don't have an ergonomic standard. What kind of injuries happen in this workplace? You can do some shopping now and get educated thanks to this administration and the new rule that has been put out to say, is this a safe workplace? Is it not? Would I want to go there and work there and risk my health? my safety, uh, and worse yet, my life. Uh, so this is some of the important work that's being done. And there's so much more, so much more yet to be done. Yeah. Now, what's interesting to me is, you know, the reason I brought up that Richard Nixon was the guy who signed it is because I don't think we ever get OSHA again. I, I you know, I, Jordan said the other, Jordan Barab the other, said the other day, you know, Republicans don't do OSHA. Uh, the sad reality is if we don't get something done during the Biden term and Trump is elected in 2024, it's going to be four more years before anything positive happens. And there will be a lot of negative. And it got me to thinking about, you know, I think people don't. It's been so long, 1970. Most people don't barely remember. Most people that are alive today don't know what it was like before OSHA. In fact, 
uh, real quick story. You know, uh, last year we did a working class heroes tour uh, where we went around you know various states talking about worker issues and and stuff. And we ended up in Scranton, Pennsylvania, and we did the coal mine tour up there. And mm -hmm. the guy who gave us the tour was explaining what the working conditions were like, you know, knee deep in feces and, and muck and, you know, just horrible, horrible conditions. You know, you're breathing the coal dust, you're breathing the, the fumes from all this, this other stuff. It's just a soup of horrible. And there's, there's no light and, you know, you're getting stepped on by donkeys. It's all of this horrible. And there was a woman in the back who said, well, where was OSHA? And you go, no, this was 1870, not 1970. Uh, these were horrible working conditions. And this is why we needed OSHA. And I think we forget why, why we need to have uh, an agency to make sure that workplaces are safe. Yes, yes. And and Rick, you're you're you hit the nail on the head. And I'll just say this. I've said this a lot in my training classes. OSHA does not stand for our savior has arrived. No one no one wants to make minimum wage everybody wants something better than minimum wage because it's not a living saving wage osha is the minimum when it comes to health and safety and too often people think as osha as the ceiling rather than the floor uh, too often as we've pointed out here in this conversation uh, regulations don't keep up regulations don't always get made and so we've got a whole lot of work to do, especially in the world of occupational safety and health with new chemicals coming on, chemicals that, you know, we, the steelworkers have had to sue government agencies to get lower exposure limits. We had to sue uh, OSHA at times to get them to do their job because of the political ramp. The politicals would not allow new standards to happen. And we took them to court and we got new standards put in place, silica being an example that you know, it's like uh, people talk about black lung when he was referring to, you know, coal miners and so on. Well, you know, there's also exposures uh, in general industry where people need those, including mining, where we just got a silica standard put together in this administration. Uh, the Trump administration said they was for miners, and yet they never put the silica standard into place. Uh, under this administration, silica standard now is finally done. It's been on the books. We've testified at hearings, and we've also wrote comments, and we're looking forward to that silica standard getting out under MSHA. And I would point out that under MSHA, uh, which is the same Department of Labor that OSHA is housed in, uh, you don't need to go through a bunch of things to to have minors select who their representative is that would accompany them on an inspection by uh, a mine safety and health administration uh, compliance officer. And, and now when you look at OSHA, uh, Rick, I've been dealing with this for a long time. Uh, I, I worked in a tire and rubber plant and I was fired and suspended from my health and safety activities. And when I was fired, I was working out of the union hall. Uh, there was an OSHA inspection that was going on. I went to help with that inspection, had been involved with it. There was an amputation. Uh, I knew tire building machines in our industry, and the employer fired me in the middle of that OSHA inspection to keep me out of the plant. And when I went back to accompany that compliance officer, uh, they ran interference. Uh, this was clear back in 1995. And then, you know, you fast forward from back then to when I was at that workplace. Now I've been working at the Steelworkers Health and Safety Department for almost 20 years. And I was denied once to accompany a, a compliance officer. And I wrote to OSHA and said, you know, workers need to have their employee representative with them to help them. 
And it was actually at another tire and rubber plant, um, a different employer, different company, but I knew the tire and rubber industry. I had experience working in one of those plants. And so in 2013, OSHA issued a letter of interpretation that said employees uh, have the right to select their representative and it could be an employee representative who's not an employee of the employer. And, um, and I never dreamed that I would go through something like this, Rick. And, and here's what happened. Uh, after OSHA had issued that letter in February of 2013, uh, I thought that would kind of help straighten out. It's a letter of interpretation that clarifies that 1970 OSH Act, the Occupational Safety and Health Act that you mentioned, that says employees have the right to have a representative uh, represent them. And that could be in a union or non-union workplace. And in fact, OSHA has worked with like the Guest Workers Alliance uh, in Hershey, PA, where it was a non-union shop. And those workers were dealing with wage theft, safety issues, and a community group represented them. So I want to make sure that this is clear. This isn't just a union issue. This is a worker issue. Whether you're in a union or not, you should have the right to be able to pick who you would like to help you when OSHA comes to your workplace. And I got to that tire plant uh, and we had had issues there where there was a life-altering injury, a hand amputation. And lo and behold, six days later, there was a double hand amputation with a mill. Same facility, same type of equipment, different location. And uh, we went there said this this can't be happening and we tried to walk around with osha the employer said no steve you're not welcome and i said there's a letter of interpretation under my name on osha's website dated in february of 2023 and the company's outside lawyer said nope you're still not coming in and so here was this letter we still had all these challenges OSHA was going to bring in U.S. federal marshals who were physically going to pick wow. anyone up and, and remove them out of the way that would prevent me from walking with OSHA. And if an employer has that much to hide, that says they're doing something wrong. And they know they're well, doing something wrong, and that's absolutely, the part of it. Absolutely. And here's the deal. OSHA, you know, lets employers... Uh, select who their representative is. They might have outside counsel. They might have inside counsel. They might bring in someone who's an expert on a certain hazard like combustible dust or process safety management. The employer can pick any representative that they have or want. Why can't workers have that same level playing field? And, and we're fortunate under this administration, OSHA now has put out a rule, a proposed rule. We've provided comments on it so as many others in the labor industry labor uh, movement and industry has as well uh it's time that that playing field be leveled no i'm with you and what's interesting is as you're talking about this i'm going steve you're a steel worker <laughs> uh you're in a union you've got representation imagine all of those people out there who don't have representation who don't have a union to have their back and fight for them how how far the pendulum is swung into the side of employers especially when you start talking about harassment intimidation and firings your union went to bat for you fought for you uh, imagine being in a situation where where that's not that's not there for you uh, this is why I think it's important to have a strengthened OSHA and one that is is fairly muscular and maybe going to bring in the, the federal marshals 
Absolutely. And I'll, and I'll tell you, you know, ultimately OSHA said, you know, we, we can take this all the way that we need to go to. And then OSHA said, you know what, Steve, um, we're just going to bring you in as our expert. We're not even going to try to have some legal fight that's going to take for far too long while people are being exposed. And so I had to take off my USW hat, if you will, and put on an OSHA hat and serve as their expert because I had worked around rubber mills. I knew them. I was actually on a mill rescue team. Um, so whether you're, you know, officially educated, you have a degree in occupational health and safety, or you're a worker representative who knows the industry, who can provide comfort to the workers that says, I trust you, Steve, I know you know how OSHA works. Um, and that's what workers need is that level of comfort. So then that way, when OSHA shows up, they have trust in that person. They know that that person's there to represent yeah. their interest. And that's why industry wants to keep people out. And if people don't recognize how important it is to support this regulation that's on the books, um, that didn't happen in the previous administration. In the previous Trump administration in 2017, they revoked that letter. They said, we don't want anything that was called the Salman letter. Um, that's what industry referred to this letter as, was the Salman letter. And they had the Trump administration put it in archives. And in fact, it was challenged legally. And that's why we are where we are today uh, there was employers who, who took legal action around it to try to keep representatives out who could help workers. And at this point, we're at right now where OSHA put out the proposed rule. They've taken comments. Uh, those comments closed uh, last month, and they have some reviewing to do. And we're hopeful that this standard will be out here sometime soon, that workers have the right to select who they want it to be, whether it's a union shop, non-union shop, it could be an expert, it could be someone, it could be their clergy, if it's their pastor, someone that, you know, they trust, um, that it's not a union. They, there's all kinds of benefits that's going to help make safer workplaces, but it's about power and control. The employers don't want to give up power and control, and neither does the Republican Party, and that's why they take care of the corporate funds. Now, as I say, Republicans hate working people. Look at what they do. This is another example of that. Uh, last question I've got for you, Steve, because this is a big deal. The steal of Bidenism, this is kind of a big freaking deal. Um, you know, how... My my problem is I think a lot of working people get get distracted by the shiny stuff, by the the outrage candy of the day when it's this kind of stuff that's going to protect them, their lives, their families. This to me, this is the message to me. This this is the stuff we should be voting on, isn't it? If you don't vote for your job, um, then you can't afford to do anything else. Take a vacation. Uh, whatever hobbies you've got, uh, you can't you can't afford it. And if you don't have that living saving wage job, and I'll say a safe and healthy job, then you can't even retire with your health, your your lungs, your hearing. Uh, you know, you look at what's going on right now with heat. Uh, you know, there was a big issue with the Teamsters, right? And how the union had to bargain with that company to make sure that workers were protected from heat. Uh, OSHA doesn't have a regulation for heat. They have what's called the general duty clause under section, uh, under the what's called the general duty clause, um, section 5A1 that says the employer has to provide a safe and healthy workplace. Well, heat is a recognized hazard. I mean, we've got people that have been suffering from heat for a long time yeah. and there's controls. It's called air conditioning. It's called fans. It's not going to break UPS to put some engineering controls to provide some creature comforts 
that can make an employee healthier, safer, and ultimately even more productive for that company because a productive worker, a, a worker that's safe um, is always going to be there and you don't have to go through this. Well, we're gonna keep hiring people and, and we're going through this right now where they treat workers as a disposable workforce. And then you have what's, what's new training new or we've heard as green training green. And then you don't have that knowledge and that uh, working knowledge of an experience of how to do jobs and when things are upset, how do you handle upset conditions? So it's really important that we have jobs that are not only living, saving wage jobs, but jobs that got to be healthy and safe. And Absolutely. the best way to do that is to have a union because you can't rely upon minimum wage regulations. And that's why unions bargain for safe and healthier working conditions because OSHA can't protect every workplace, but unions can. There you go. Uh, Steve, I appreciate the thoughts. I appreciate the, the good words. Uh, I'm, I'm hoping the new year brings us some good standards, especially on heat and, uh, and other stuff. And when it happens, we'd love to have you come back and, and keep us up to date on what's going on. All right, brother. It's a pleasure. Thank you for the honor and privilege. Thank you so much, Steve Solomon, uh, Director of Health and Safety and Environment there with the United Steelworkers. USW.org, the website, if you want to take a look at the work that they do. Going to take a quick break. Right back. Stick around and listen to The Rick Smith Show. More working people come to talk. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1921. That was the day Kansas National Guard troops marched into Crawford County coal fields to quell the Mother's March. 8,000 miners went on strike that September to protest the jailing of their United Mine Worker District leader, Alexander Hoett. Hoett was found guilty of violating a statewide strike injunction for calling workers out on strike in 1919. Governor Henry Justin Allen had established a state industrial court which ruled strikes illegal. Hoett's members considered it a new kind of Fugitive Slave Act. They likened their jailed leader to a modern-day John Brown. The United Mine Workers opposed the court and the increasing number of unauthorized strikes. Many district leaders were divided over this protest strike and chose not to support it. The strike also divided the membership, and some went back to work. Conditions worsened after three months until the striking miners' wives took matters into their own hands. They met in Franklin to organize a march that would effectively shut down the mines. Their numbers grew from 500 that first day to over 4,000. According to Benjamin Guzan, for three days the women stormed area mines, obstructed traffic, and assaulted workers. When met with resistance, they threw red pepper at scab workers and overturned their lunch buckets, showering the miners with coffee and what had been intended as their midday meals. Four companies of National Guard troops, including a machine gun division, arrived to stop the march and break the strike. The press derisively referred to the women as the Amazon Army. Many women were arrested, but mobilized their newly won voting power to unseat anti-labor politicians the next spring. As a result, the state's industrial court was ruled unconstitutional. Like what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com. Welcome back to The Rick Smith Show. Check out our website, thericksmithshow.com. So I got to tell you, you know, there is no way uh, that OSHA would pass today. There's just not. And you stop and think about for a minute all of the lives that have been saved because of, of government regulation 
to ensure and to mandate that workplaces are safe? Do you think employers would do it on their own, uh, given the fact that in virtually every occasion, the fines, the penalties are so minuscule? And I want, you know, I, 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 I joke, uh, more like quip. That if I wanted to kill somebody, really, if I did, if I wanted to kill somebody, I would just give them a job. I'd hire them because that's, well, that's how you get away with it. Because there's there's really no enforcement. You can make the most dangerous situations and, you know, there's a small fine. And we seriously have to think about, you know, what the future of the of, of OSHA is and when, what what we allow to have happen. The fact that you know the Biden administration hasn't gotten anything yet done uh, on new standards should be concerning to every working person. Because guess what? If Trump does win in 2024, if that happens, there certainly will not be new regulations to keep you safe. What will happen, and I guarantee what will happen, is they will destroy the regulations that are in place now. And that that will make you less safe. That will make your family less secure. So think about that. Want to hear your thoughts? Email me, rick at the ricksmithshow.com. Miss any portion of the program, grab the podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll see you back here next time. You've been listening to The Rick Smith Show. Email Rick. At Rick at the ricksmithshow.com. Until next time, this has been the Rick Smith Show, where working people come to talk. We are AFGE, the American Federation of Government Employees. We represent 700,000 federal and D.C. government workers who are the vital threads of the fabric of American life. We support our nation's military. We take care of our nation's veterans. We protect our nation's borders. We respond to our nation's crises and natural disasters. We provide services to our nation's seniors. The American Federation of Government Employees. We work... For America. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 2005. That was the day the labor movement lost a man who was willing to go to jail to fight for the rights of working people. Clinton Jenks was born in Colorado Springs in 1918. He learned of labor consciousness from his father, a postal worker. During World War II, Jenks served as a navigator for the Air Force. He was awarded a Distinguished Flying Cross. After the war, he became involved in supporting the needs of veterans. He served as the president of his chapter of the American Veterans Committee. Jenks became a business agent for the Amalgamated Union of Mines, Mills, and Smelter Workers. In 1950, he helped Local 890 to carry out a 15-month strike against the Empire Zinc Company in New Mexico. The union members were predominantly Mexican-American. The story of that strike was told in the iconic labor film, The Salt of the Earth. In 1951, Jenks was elected president of Local 890. He was jailed for his involvement in labor actions and held in solitary confinement for 16 months. After his release, he was again put on trial. This time, he was accused of being a secret member of the Communist Party. It was illegal for labor leaders to have ties to the Communist Party after the passage of the Taft-Hartley Act. An FBI informant claimed Jenks was a communist. He was tried and convicted. 
Later, the informant admitted he had lied about Jenks. In 1957, the U.S. Supreme Court overturned his conviction in what became known as the Jenks case. The story of Clinton Jenks shows that even the loyalties of a decorated war veteran can be questioned if he dares to stand up for the rights of working people. Today's Labor History in Two brought to you in memory of Carol Hillman, a passionate friend of workers and volunteer of the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show.